Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. We are so glad you're here. For more content and upcoming events, visit anchorchurchcsra.com. In Acts chapter 2, we're going to get into the Word together tonight, and the title for tonight's sermon is Taking a Stand, the first sermon. And I don't know if you've had to take a stand before, if there came this uh, rubber meets the road moment maybe in your life, and you knew, okay, I can't, I can't hide anymore. I've got to step out. I've got to be more bold and courageous than I feel like I can even do. Have you been there before? Have you ever had to do something? Let me just ask you this. Have you had to do something that made you feel really uncomfortable and made you want, yeah, it made you, thank you. Thank you for that hand. And so like, you're in this spot of, I don't know if I can do it, but God can. He can do it through you. I, re- I remember my first sermon. As I think about, uh, this is Peter's first sermon in the book of Acts tonight. As the Holy Spirit came and empowered them, Peter stands to preach the very first sermon in the very first church. And I remember my first sermon. Um, I am thankful that there's no available recording of it uh, because um, I, was, I, I was tossed into deep water. There was a pastor at the church. I had recently come to Christ in this church. Long story short, I got invited to play on the worship team. I was a music major at Georgia Southern. They just invited me to play. Uh, they didn't have a drummer, so I filled in on drums. They didn't have a bass player, so I played bass one Sunday. And then they said, our electric guitar player quits. And I filled in there, and I was just kind of like a multi-instrumentalist just helping out. And it got me around the gospel. And I never really heard this gospel that, that I could be saved from my sin by the grace of God. And God was just drawing me into a relationship with him through the music ministry. And then so I came to Christ. I felt called to ministry a short time after that. And the pastor there just really began to meet with me and pour into me a little bit. And he said, yeah, yeah, I see that call to ministry. Like you, I, you would, you're gonna make a great pastor one day. And that meant so much to me at the time. I did not see that in myself. And so to have you know, a pastor of 40 plus years to look at me and say, I see that gifting in you. Uh, just meant the world to me. And he said, oh, by the way, you're gonna preach next Sunday. And I'm like, how do you do that? Like, how do you, how do you preach? Uh, you know, he said, go to the Bible and pick out like your favorite verse and you're gonna talk about it for about 20 minutes. And so I've never had an issue talking to anyone about anything. I was the kid in the McDonald's playground that would come up to you and say, hey, do you wanna play? I mean, I've always been a bubbly extrovert. I would make friends with a brick wall, you know, just anywhere, everywhere. Um, and so I did. So I got up on the, the, the altar and, and preached about 300 people about how faith without works is dead. That's about all I remember that I said, but that's in God's word. And I did say that part. And so I know God used it. Um, but like I said, thankfully no transcripts or recordings exist. So um, I'm, I hope that this one will be better than that first one. But Peter stands to give his first sermon. And His was on the back end of this miraculous fulfillment. If you weren't here last week, or if you're kind of new into this uh, Acts series as we're in the second chapter, here's, here's what you missed. The church was waiting on a promise from God. The Father was going to send his spirit to the church. And why did he do that? Well, he promised he would. He's faithful, he he, he fulfills his promises. But not only that, he wants to send his spirit to empower the church to be started. And so the whole book of Acts is really the story of how the church began and how the Spirit was at work in the lives of the church. And so the Spirit came down from heaven and 
People were speaking in all these different languages, not in mysterious, ecstatic utterances that nobody understood, but they were speaking in known earthly languages. And just so happened, there was this big feast called Pentecost. Everybody was in town for it. And so all these Jewish people from everywhere, even proselytes that had come to Judaism from other cultures, they were hearing it in their native tongue. And it was just this crazy awesome event where everyone's hearing the glory of God in their own language. There will never be a situation like another Pentecost. I mean, it was, it was a unique and amazing event. And then amidst all that, there was some confusion. Why is this going on? I, I need some clarity. There's, there's a lot of different languages being spoken at one time. You could understand how even those certain people had clarity. There were a lot of people that didn't. They were actually, there were actually some haters on the side that said, I think these people are like wasted. I think they're just messing around. And Peter stands in the outer temple courts. This is where they would have been. And he stands to bring clarity to any existing confusion. And he comes, there had already been glorification of God, but it's time for the special revelation to come in, the gospel, the good news that saves and God ordained this moment, and so Peter stands to preach, and we're going to cover a couple of things tonight. The first thing, just simply, if you wanna just write this down, we're gonna talk about what happened. So all you note takers out there, just write this down, what happened? And simply put, the Spirit had come. The Spirit had come. We're gonna just work through these verses, 14 through 21. Like we said earlier, our God's a promise keeper. He's faithful. What he says he's going to do, he does. And the Spirit came. There were 120 disciples praying in an upper room, waiting with expectation. And so the Spirit comes like a rushing wind, fills the believers. Different tongues were being spoken. People were amazed and speechless and some confused. And verse 14 says this in chapter two, Peter stood up. He takes his stand with the 11. These are the primary 12 apostles. Remember, they replaced Judas. And so they have the 12 there. He stands up with the 11. He raised his voice, why? Because they didn't have a microphone. <laughs> they didn't have a sound system. He raises his voice also because the Spirit empowered him to speak boldly and courageously beyond what he even perceived he could. And he proclaimed to them, fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. Acts 2.15 says, for these people are not drunk as you suppose since it's only nine in the morning. And so Peter immediately answers the objections that everybody's saying that you know, they're only doing this because they're drunk. He's like, no, it's only 9 a.m. And so he gets that out of the way so that we can get to the more important meat of the discussion. But here's what it is. The presence in Jesus and the power of the spirit gives us courage to do things we never thought that we would do. And just weeks earlier, as Jesus is being led to the cross, as Jesus is arrested and betrayed by Judas, Peter's a coward. He's, he's sheepishly following Jesus from a distance. You remember the story in the Gospels? Peter was asked a couple different times, do you know, are you with Jesus? And Peter did what? He denied him. How many times? Three, and the rooster crows. And you, okay, so this story is, is familiar to some of us in the room. If it's not, go back and read the very end of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and you find this account of 
Peter being a, being a coward, he's, he, he's afraid he's gonna be crucified if he identifies too much with Jesus and so he's hanging back and now we see a totally different guy. We see a spirit-empowered man, an emboldened servant of Christ. And I will tell you at the heart of great preaching, we see it here in Peter's sermon, it's a heart for the people. At the heart of every good sermon. And I would tell you guys, um, it's, I mean, it's no secret uh, that, I mean, as I stand to preach before you tonight, I do not claim to be some gifted orator, but what I, but what I can tell you is that I care about you. And that's why I'm here. Even if I don't know you that well, I know that sometimes we get a little skeptical, like, oh, I don't know, I, like we kind of just met, like, do you really care about me? It sounds like something some preacher would just say or that a pastor would just say, because it's your job to say it. I can assure you I would not stand here if I did not care for you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare. I take it seriously. And I take Peter as a great example of this because Peter had a heart for the people. The best testimonies, and we can all get on, in on this together, the best testimonies of life change are accompanied by genuine concern for the recipients of that testimony. And I saw that in my brother Austin last week as, as he shared up here, as he baptized his wife and as he shared what, what God was doing in him and as he was baptized, just sharing, I have a concern for you guys. I want you guys to be changed by Jesus the same way I was. And so you spurred me on, brother, to do the same thing. And we're all spurred on to do the same. At the heart of every testimony, a great testimony is a genuine concern for the recipients. And so in order to understand what happened, we must look to other scripture to help make even more clear what God is doing. This is how we do biblical preaching here at Anchor. We have a central text, but we're gonna go to other parts of scripture. And Peter kind of helps us out with that because in his sermon, he gives us three different Old Testament uh, prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ. What is he trying to do? He's trying to lead people to Jesus. He's trying to make it clear how what Jesus did was so significant in his heart is that they would also follow Jesus as well. And so we're gonna let scripture make scripture clear. So Peter introduces three Old Testament passages. You can write these down, Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. I'll say it one more time, Joel chapter two, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. And we're not gonna read all of those chapters, but Peter uses certain verses in there, so we'll tackle them one by one. So let's look first at, um, at, at the prophet Joel. Prophet Joel. Joel. Joel was a prophet that spoke to Israel, okay? Before the times of Jesus, as Israel was disobeying God, they were off track and God was calling them back. He's saying, repent, you're off the road. Like, like you're in the ditch, Israel. You need to repent, you need to come back to me. I'm faithful, I will, I, I will restore you. And so Joel brought that message. He says, you need to repent. But then Joel also talked about this day of the Lord. Everybody say day of the Lord. Day of the Lord. That was, if you think of Joel, just think of day of the Lord because there's a whole chapter on it. And then he keeps talking about this day that's coming, these last days, these end times as, as we call it today. That's probably our more uh, common reference point today is the end times, but the last days. And, li and so Peter is quoting Joel from memory. And here's what he says. In Acts 2.16, on the contrary, this is what was spoken to the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my, what's that word? Spirit, is that a capital S there? 
So this is the Holy Spirit. This is a prophecy about the Spirit coming. I will pour out my Spirit on who? All people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my Spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in heaven above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon turned to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. And then, my favorite, one of my favorite words in scripture, what's that next word after then? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's the good news right there. It's not how rich you are. It's not how good you are. It's not how much stuff you have. It's not your accolades. We come to the Lord empty-handed. We say, God, I've got nothing. You've got everything. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So let's tackle this prophecy in Joel. What is this all about? Well, this quotation focuses on God's promise, again, to pour out his spirit on who again? Everyone. Like, no one's missing out on this. And in this situation, in Acts chapter two, what Peter's referring to, it had already started. Now, had everyone received the Spirit at this point? No, it was just 120. And then now it's going to go out from there. So you've seen these, um, you know, these little fountains where the water's flowing at the top and it trickles down, it trickles down to this layer, it trickles down to this layer. So the first little bit has been accomplished. And we're gonna get into talking about what we're gonna call a now but not yet prophecy. So hang on to that for a second. But God's promise to pour out his spirit on all flesh. What happened the day of Pentecost was a near fulfillment with a final fulfillment coming in the last days. You know, Joel prophesied mostly about judgment that was coming to Israel, like we said a minute ago. But even though they warned him many times, Joel, Joel warns him over and over again. God also gave several words of promise, promises of future blessing like this one. It announces the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Joel's words, they, they almost furnish the explanation of the first Pentecost, though it doesn't find its fulfillment. Here's how the Jews understood things. They said, hey, what's gonna happen is that the Old Testament era is gonna happen, and then there's gonna come the Spirit that's going to bring the kingdom. And when the Spirit comes, that's, that's, that's when the full-on kingdom of God is, is just gonna be there. So that's how the Jews had thought of things. That's, that's what the rabbis had been teaching. What Peter says is a little different, and it's not because God changed his mind or because, the, but, but here's what happened with, with the Jewish people over time, because what did I just tell you about Israel? They were kind of off base, right? And they kind of missed the boat on some things, right? And they were led into uh, this period of exile. Uh, the Assyrians took over them and the Babylonians took over them and they went into exile and they had a real rough time. And so over the period of years leading up to Jesus, some things had gotten mixed around and Peter's setting the record straight. The Holy Spirit's using him to say, yeah, the Old Testament era, right? But then there's gonna be this interim period where the Holy Spirit's gonna come and the kingdom of God is not all the way there yet, but here's what's gonna happen. All of history was kind of leading up to this point. And then in this interim era where, where the Holy Spirit has come, that's Acts chapter two, that's what we're talking about. Now, the kingdom of God established and the coming of the Holy Spirit, they're going to run parallel to one another. So you, you see this. So you got the Old Testament era. It's heading this direction. 
Spirit's gonna come one day. Kingdom of God's gonna come one day. And now we see a parallel journey of where, of where the Spirit has come. And what did Jesus say? We're, we're going to, he said it in the Lord's Prayer. He says, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so what's the church for? That the kingdom of God would come. That people in this world would see what the kingdom of God is like and who God is like through the church. Let me ask you a question in 2023. Is that happening? Is the world seeing who the kingdom of God is through the church at large? It's not happening the way it should be, is it? So just like Israel, lest, lest we kind of browbeat them sometimes and go, come on guys, don't y'all get it? I mean, we, you know, we got a complete Bible to look at and we're like, can't you guys see the, I mean, but we get off base too, don't we? And so the church has got to wake up, especially in this nation. We're the only nation in the entire world where Christianity is not expanding. Did you know that? The U.S., People are sending their missionaries here to reach a secularized West now. And we gotta wake up and we have to embrace the kingdom's mission. That's why we have a kingdom focus. That's why we talk so much about the kingdom here at Anchor because it is about the kingdom of God. And so we have this interim period where the Holy Spirit's coming, the kingdom of God running parallel to one another until what happens at the consummation of those two parallel lines, they will converge. And at that point, Jesus will come back. At that point, he will ride. The, 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 the Bible tells us he's not coming as a humble king when he comes back. He's coming with a sword in his fist. He's coming on a, sword, he's coming on a horse with a sword in, in his fist. And he's coming to judge the living and the dead. And that can either be a scary thing or that can either be a glorious thing. And you get to decide. And you get to decide. If you're right with Jesus, the Bible says we're more than conquerors with him. The Bible has all kinds of promises for you. If you were at peace with Jesus, if you're not at peace with Jesus, then you will be under that judgment. And we're gonna be very clear with you about how you can be not underneath God's judgment, about how you can be in right relationship with him. So the first half, marking the beginning of the end of the world, the establishment of God's kingdom. And so again, now, but not yet. This is how Joel works. We get a glimpse of the end times here. Signs, wonders, blood, smoke, fire. Did you guys pick up on that in the text? And so the first part that Peter's quoting is happening now, but then the next part is the not yet. Let's move on. God is doing a new thing in a new season. Peter's making this clear. So we talked about the what, the spirit came, but now let's talk about the how. So write this down. How did it happen? How did it happen? The rest of our time together tonight is gonna focus on the simple fact that Jesus, he came, he died, and he rose again. This is as clear of a gospel presentation as you're gonna get in the scriptures. Peter says in Acts 2.22, he says, Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. He already says fellow Israelites. Again, he has, a, he has a concern for the people. He's Jewish, they're Jewish. He has a heart for them. Does Peter have a heart for everybody? He will, he will, he ultimately does. But the Gentiles are gonna receive the gospel later in Acts. We're, we're gonna get there. But this is Jesus of Nazareth. He was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Basically, he says, you guys saw the stuff that Jesus was doing. No one could deny the signs and wonders and miracles that Jesus was doing. And he was doing it to point to the fact that he was who he said he was, that only God could do these things. 
they had magicians and wizards and different things and divination and, and, and different occultic practices going on at the time of Jesus, but Jesus was doing things that they couldn't do. Jesus was raising the dead. He was, he, I mean, he was just doing things that just made people's jaws hang open, d- delivering people from demonic oppression, all sorts of things. But you know what Peter does here in this verse? As we have 22 up here, Peter is highlighting two things. This is very important. You can write these down if you're taking notes. He's highlighting Jesus' humanity and his divinity. And by the way, this is what the early church would argue about for the first 300 years. Jesus' humanity and divinity, because those are two things that are kind of tough to reconcile sometimes. How human was Jesus? How divine was Jesus? Was he fully human and not fully divine? Was he fully divine but not really human? Correct biblical doctrine teaches us in a, a phrase called hypostatic union. That's a big fancy word that just means that both of those things were true at the same time. Everything that it means to be God, Jesus was. Everything that it meant to be a, a real man, Jesus was, yet without sin, because he was fully God. So when those two attributes are fused together, we have the hypostatic union, his humanity, his divinity. And what Peter's doing here, he's setting up an indictment. He's, he's about to come down on him. Peter's, Peter's a tell it like it is kind of guy. And there's a time and place for tell it like it is. Some of us like tell it like it is a little too much. We gotta, we gotta kind of pump the brakes a little bit. But, but there's a time and place to have that salt. Remember Jesus said, you, you are the salt of the earth. Put a, put a little salt on the tip of your tongue. It's potent, right? So there's, there's a time to have that pungent punch. And this is where Peter does it in 2.23 here. Peter says, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. So this is 50 days after the crucifixion. And a little context for you, the people Peter's talking to, they were the people that shouted, crucify him, crucify him. They were, they were the very people standing there when, they were, when Pontius Pilate was like, there's this guy named Barabbas. He's a criminal, he's convicted, he's guilty, he's a sinner. You guys want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? And they said, we want Barabbas. We don't, we don't want Jesus. Put him on a cross. Kill the innocent man. We, we, we want the guilty man. We want the criminal. We want the thief. And so Peter is indicting them. He said, not only did you kill him, you used Rome as your weapon. Because the Romans delighted in crucifixion. It was one of their favorite ways to shame people and flex their power. And so these people who shouted crucify him, they were being brought face to face with their support of killing the sinless son of God. But don't miss this, in verse 24, or sorry, go back back to 23. Let's let's put 23. You see the phrase, God's determined plan. All of this was part of God's plan. Why is that so important? Because what do we struggle with, friends? How could God allow suffering and evil? It's the problem of suffering. How could a good and loving God allow this? And what do we see in the gospel? in what happened to Jesus. Evil and suffering, injustice, happening to who? A mere human? Happening to God. He went through injustice. 
He went through suffering. He went through evil to the most extreme levels. Why? Because he's holy and infinitely deserving of our worship. And he was treated like a criminal. They beat him to a bloody pulp. We don't even get an accurate picture at Easter time when leading up to Good Friday. If we could see what Jesus looked like when they put him up on the cross, we wouldn't even recognize him as a human. I mean, they literally ripped the skin off his body. It was a bloody mess. It was, it was a miracle he even survived the scourging. Most, most men died during that process. And yet, he was treated as a criminal, put on the cross. Peter says, you used, you used Rome. You nailed him. You killed him. You are responsible. He had to confront them with their sin. It was time for them to be convicted. Why? So that God could just beat up on them and, and send them straight to hell and judge them. Oh, we're gonna see their response next week. Come back next week for the response. We're gonna focus solely on the response because a lot of people get saved. And that's why this message is so important. That's why we talk about tough things in the Bible because God's will is that we would repent and believe. And so next week, we're gonna focus completely on that. But it was God's determined plan. The Greek word is horizo, where we get our word horizon. Appointed or designated. This is not merely fate. This is not some kind of secular fate. Well, it was just Jesus' fate. No, it was, the, it was the plan that the Father and the Son both knew was coming. And Jesus accomplished it. Remember his prayer in the garden. He said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. I will go to the cross. Philippians 2 tells us that he was, he was perfectly obedient, even to the point of death. He emptied himself, became a slave and a servant to the point of death even death on a cross. And what's the so that in that passage of Philippians chapter two, verse eight, so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the point. So how does suffering and evil work in this world? The problem of suffering and evil, God uses suffering and evil, the worst of the worst, he uses it to still accomplish his divine plan of salvation. He works out evil, in an evil, sick, sinful world, he works it out for good. And he does it in a way that only God could do. If you haven't experienced that in your life, it takes a surrender to God to see that. You'll never see it unless you repent and believe in Jesus. You'll always be tripped up in the empty philosophies of man. Man, if you're, if you're dependent on philosophy to sort this thing out, good luck. Because it's, it's a confusing mess. You cannot purely philosophize this kind of stuff. You can't purely just come up with some earthly argument to satisfy you. And I've sat with many who struggle with this concept and they're never satisfied with any explanation. You know why? Because it takes a changed heart, a transformed heart in Christ to see the beauty of the gospel, to see the beauty of a God that loved, that loved the world so much he would send his only son. I would take a bullet for any of you right now but I would never send any of my sons to death for you. I'd step out in a car for you guys, I, I would. But I would, not, I would not send one of my sons to death for you. And yet God would do that for us. Why, because he had to? No, because it was the plan. His determined plan and his foreknowledge. God sees what's coming, friends, we can trust him. Let's move on. Peter also quoted David. He quoted 
David, a man after God's own heart, to help us understand another fulfillment in Christ. This is the Greek version, uh, the Greek Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Let's go to Acts 2.25 together. Let's keep going in the text. For David says of him, him, him is Jesus, anytime you're seeing him. David says of Jesus, I saw the Lord ever before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in, in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the path of life to me. You will fill me with the gladness of your presence. Don't miss the simple fact that David was only confident in his own resurrection because of the resurrection of Jesus. Now we're moving on to the resurrection. Verse 27, you will not allow your holy one to see decay. Who's, who's the holy one? David says it's Jesus as a prophet. David was a prophet. He was a shepherd, he was a prophet, he was a king. He reflected who Jesus was going to be for us because Jesus was all of those things as well. Your holy one was not David, but Jesus. Jesus bore the full wrath of God on the cross. Did you know that, friends? that what happened to him while he was paying for our sins on the cross, the whole wrath of God was being poured on him. All of your sins, all of my sins, all of everyone's sins ever being poured upon him. He, he's perfect, he doesn't deserve it, but he's taking it. He's paying the price as if he were a guilty sinner, guilty of all our sin, being made sin for us, as 2 Corinthians says. Yet that worked was an act of holy giving love for us. In that, Peter also makes clear in his letter, in his epistle, that Jesus never became a sinner because of that. He remained sinless while he bore the guilt of our sin. Who can do that? A mere human? No, only God could pay that price. And what was all of, all, all of the Old Testament leading up to that point, the sacrificial system, the law, the, what, what was the law even for? Galatians tells us down the line that the law was just to show us that we can't keep it. We could never be good enough, that only Jesus could do it. And so Jesus was good enough and he accomplished it for us. So this is the gospel message that Jesus took our punishment, our sin on the cross. He remained a perfect savior through the whole process, and this was proved by his resurrection. If Jesus was some psycho who just claimed all this stuff, just like other people who would claim to be such and such and who made all these empty prophecies, if he did not raise from the dead, he would prove to be a crazy man. C.S. Lewis talked about the trilemma. Have you guys heard about that before? Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And you can only be one of those things. And C.S. Lewis pre presents pages in Mere Christianity about this argument. And friends, Jesus is Lord, why? Because we have the proof of his resurrection. What's the proof we're getting to that? Verse 28, we see this amazing treasure buried, buried in the middle here that I, I, can't, I can't let us get past it. Verse 28, you, God, David says, you've revealed the paths of life to me. You fill me with gladness, how? How, did, how does God give us joy, friends? His presence, don't miss that. He is present here tonight. And your emotions may not perceive it. And guess what, mine, mine don't every day. I don't always feel it, okay? 
And sometimes God just hits you with a holy two by four and you feel it and you just start weeping, okay? It happened. It happened, it happened to me Friday while I was preparing another. I got to preach this morning at one of our partner churches in Psalm 139. Fearfully and wonderfully made on your birthday. Just, you know, just bald my eyes out like a baby. We don't always feel it like that. But he's always true and he's always with you. And that's why this word is so important. If we bank on the word, then we really grasp that he cannot change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no shifting shadow of change, James tells us. And so he says in 29, let's move on to Acts 2.29. Let's keep going through this text. Peter says, brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. <laughs> He's both dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Because people were thinking, oh yeah, so I guess David's the holy one. No, Peter says, we, we know where he's at. We, we can go to his grave. But in 2.30, we read, since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on the throne. What in the world is Peter talking about here? Well, in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a promise to David. And he says, David, your family member, your, one of your descendants, a son of David is coming. I will make sure that he's seated upon your throne. This is why Jesus was called the son of David. This is a covenant promise that God made to David. And so Peter's recalling that because the Jewish audience would have been well familiar with this. They would have definitely known about the Davidic covenant, as we say in scripture. Jesus is the son of David. He's not only the son of David, but let's move on to 31. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. And here it comes. He was not abandoned in Hades and his flesh did not experience decay. God raised this Jesus and we're all witnesses of this. It is a verifiable fact that Jesus rose from the grave. How do we know that? How do we know that? Well, there's a lot of reasons. But the key reason, Peter makes it clear. We have witnesses. We have witnesses who came. How many witnesses? Well, here, Peter says we. He's not just talking about the twelve. He's talking about the 120 that Jesus appeared to. But Paul tells us in Corinthians later that Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. So Jesus spent his 40 days making sure there were witnesses. And then what does he say in Acts chapter one? And we've already went through it. We're in, we're in our fourth week of our series, but in our first week, he told us that we're gonna be his witnesses. Well, we didn't see it face to face, so how do we know? Because his witnesses wrote it down. And Luke interviewed a lot of people when he wrote Acts. And Luke was meticulous, way more meticulous than you and I. These people cared deeply that future generations would know what really happened to Jesus. And we trust his word. If you study the Bible, I'm just gonna comment 30 seconds on this. I'm gonna restrain myself from going any longer. If you really study how the Bible was made and you compare it against any other historical book of antiquity, guys, we have enough manuscripts of this text, of, of a complete Bible, we have enough manuscripts to stack them all the way to the moon. You cannot do that with any other book. In fact, most other books of antiquity don't even have autographs, as we call them, original fragments. They don't even have them. And yet so often in secular universities and different, in different environments that, that spit in the face of God, don't even care that there's no original copies of this. They just accept it at face value. 
we have enormous literary evidence that this is a reliable account of what happened, that this is really what Peter said. It's a verifiable fact that Jesus rose from the grave. We are all witnesses of this. This is not a hoax, this is not collusion, a real resurrection. And guess what resurrection is theologically, friends? It's the acceptance of the payment of the cross. Jesus said it's finished. He yielded up his, his spirit. He died a real death. They buried him, a real burial. And then the resurrection was the signal that that payment had been accepted. Payment approved. I'll prove it. Jesus came back. So we covered the crucifixion. We covered the, the resurrection. Now let's dive into the ascension because we can't, we can't miss the ascension. Why? Because that's where Jesus is now. We go, well, where's, where's Jesus? He, he went up, like, where, where is he? What's he doing? What's the significance of that? Let's get into that for a second. Acts 2.33. Therefore, since, since he, Jesus, has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised spirit, and he has poured out both what you see and hear. So that's how the ordeal shakes out. Jesus, exalted to the right hand of God, Receive from the Father the promised spirit, and then Jesus sends that spirit. Do you see the Trinity at work here? We get a glimpse of how the Trinity works. We have all kinds of questions about the Trinity. This is one of those Trinitarian passages when people say there's no Trinity in the Bible, and you take them here among the many, many, many others. So mark, mark this one down. For it was not David, verse 34, it, it, it was not David who ascended into heaven, because people get caught up, okay, yeah, it's literally David in these Psalms. No, 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 David prophesied about Jesus. Listen to what Psalm 110 says. The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until what? Until I make your enemies your footstool. In this Psalm 110, just very quickly, King David, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded that Yahweh, Israel's covenant God, the capital L-O-R-D, spoke to David's Lord, my Lord, as God. Jesus has spoken to many, many, many places as, as God. Do not believe the cults that'll show up at your door and say, Jesus never taught himself to be God. That is the most insanely ridiculous claim I could possibly imagine. There's so many places. Another one, John 8, 58, Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. I mean, he claims to be Yahweh right there. There's so many places we can choose from. This is another place, Psalm 110, 1. So where's Jesus now? Seated at the right hand of the Father. Why is he sitting down? Because he's tired? No, he's victorious. He had a seat because the job was done. And he showed back up to his father. He took his seat at that throne prepared for him at the father's right hand. That's, that's, that's the saving hand of the Lord in the Old Testament, that outstretched arm, the right hand of salvation. And Jesus took the position, not just of an exalted uh, uh, prophet or a good teacher, but the position of supremacy over the entire universe. Jesus is king. We should worship him. Note takers out there, just write down Psalm 2 and read Psalm 2 this week. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm about Jesus. And we don't have time to go through it tonight. I wish we did. It's really great, especially the last verse. But read Psalm 2 this week and remember that Jesus is Lord. We pay homage to the Son kiss his feet, 
We bow down. We just sing about it. We, we bow down at the throne of God because he's worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. We serve the king. We worship the king every week here at Anchor Church. Predictable. We're going to worship Jesus because he's worthy. And I invite everyone in the room to embrace Jesus as king today. We're closing here this week, but I told you we're covering the why next week. We talked about the what. We talked about the how. Next week, come back for the why. Let me give you a glimpse of it for this week. Um, Jesus revealed himself as king because he's inviting you to be a part of his kingdom. We can't be a part of his kingdom unless we're born again. He says in John 3, he told this guy named Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee, he was a big to-do, he was kind of a big deal. And he told Nicodemus, you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again. Nicodemus is confused. He says, born, born again. He's thinking he's talking about physically. She said, no, a spiritual rebirth. And I've got good news for you. Good news, the gospel. It's nothing you can do. It's nothing I can, it's nothing I can do. The Bible says we've been separated from God by sin. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. What's the standard? Perfection, 100%. And none of us can attain it. We've all missed the mark. That's what sin means. Because we missed the mark, we're under God's judgment. Because God is a loving God, but he's also a just God. And a good judge, what does a good judge do? He judges evil. He brings judgment upon it. And so we're under that judgment, just at face value, default, unless we repent and believe. Why do, why do we repent? Because God has this great plan for your life. It's not to go the way of sin. It's not to go the way of brokenness. It's not to follow the paths of darkness, but it's that God, God has a plan for your life to operate within his law, in his precepts, his ordinances, his teachings. And he wants to draw you close to that. We, we find those in the word. David himself said, your word's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so God wants his word to be that lamp to your feet and the light to your path to lead you back to him. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you and I so that we could be forgiven of the sin we just talked about. And you can receive that forgiveness tonight. You can have peace with God tonight, not because of anything you do or pay or anything like that. I was convinced for many years I could pay God back if I, if I was just good enough. If I just said the right things, if I just avoided the right things. Then I heard this verse in Ephesians 2 8, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone would brag about it. You're God's worksmanship prepared beforehand for good works that you would walk in them. He's got a plan for your life, friends. And I'm inviting you tonight, if you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, you can do that tonight. How do you do it? Pray to Him right now. Pray an honest prayer. What if I don't know what to say? Just pour out your heart to him. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, we just said it earlier, will be saved. Call upon his name for salvation. Jesus, I need to be forgiven of my sin. I'm sorry. I wanna change. I wanna repent. I wanna turn from my sin and I wanna trust in your payment on the cross on my behalf because he took your punishment and your shame that it would be done away with and that you would be made into a new creation that would follow his plan. No longer living for a life of sin and darkness, but a but for a life of holiness and light and purpose. And what's, what's all of our purpose, friends? To glorify God.
and enjoy him forever. Maybe you're sitting out there tonight. Maybe you're taking in the gospel again, hopefully like the first time you heard it. Maybe you just, your response tonight is just to bow down and to worship him. And say, Jesus, I promise to never get over the gospel. Those of you that have been walking with Jesus for a little while, have you ever gotten over the gospel? Hopefully it does not become boring to you. Hopefully it's like, really the same stuff. Yeah, the same message. It's glorious. This is not just good news, it's fantastic news. It's the best news. And we can pray tonight that God would use us, just like he used Peter, to take a stand in this world and to get out this kingdom message that people can come to Jesus. Who can come? Everyone. Doesn't matter what you look like, doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter who you think you are, who others think you are. It just matters that we just surrender underneath the banner of Jesus and say, Jesus, you are everything. That's all we need, that's him. And you can get that message out there. Even if you think that you're like shy and reserved, that's okay, that, that just means God's gonna overshadow that and he's gonna be more glorified as you do that. People are gonna see God possibly even more. You're like, whoa, that was, man, that was nuts. I can't, I can't believe they spoke up like that. I can because it's the power of the Holy Spirit in you. You will receive power from my spirit, he promised in 1.8. You will be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are so, so good. You're so glorious. We agree with the angels in Revelation that you are holy, holy, holy. That all dominion and power and honor and glory is due to your name, Jesus. We surrender tonight as a church, we bow down. I pray, I pray there's someone in the room tonight that surrenders to you for the first time. It just says, you know what? I'm tired of running from God. I wanna give my life to Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to them right in their heart and invite them right now into a relationship with you. That they would turn from their sin and say, Jesus, I turn from my sin. And they would trust in you for salvation. They would just pray, Jesus, I trust in you for salvation. I call upon your name. Come and save me, come and change my life. For those that know you, Lord, for your kingdom servants, embolden us with the Holy Spirit. Fall afresh on us. Burst inside of our hearts. Spirit of God, we know that you take up residence inside of believers. As we abide in you, we know you abide in us. And we just, I just pray for strength for those that have lost that edge in their faith tonight. Maybe, maybe someone's faith in the room tonight, Lord, has grown cold. And I pray that you would light it on fire again that from miles and miles, people would come to watch us burn for the Lord Jesus with passion, a passion for the gospel that would refuse the status quo, that would refuse a spiritual apathy or laziness, and that we would lean into our spiritual disciplines to prayer, to our quiet times, or giving to, to service to you. Jesus, have your way in this place. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Take this time to respond. This is our response. We wanna invite you to stand and sing if that's something you'd like to do. If you wanna remain seated and just talk to God, that's holy too. If you wanna get down on the floor and kneel down and just bow before him, do that. You, you can approach the front of the stage here and treat this as an altar, a place for prayer. Some, sometimes coming forward, it's not anything we would ever require from anyone. 
But sometimes getting out of your seat and coming forward and praying here, like God just does something different with that. Yeah, he can speak to you right there in your seat too. I get it. I, I believe that. But sometimes moving, changing our posture, it makes us more available. It just awakens, it awakens us a little to what he's saying. Lean into it tonight. God's got something for you. Let's respond together. Stand and sing or bow down before Jesus. Just pray to him. Let's worship together. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit anchorchurchcsra.com or follow us on social media at anchorchurchcsra.com.